You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation 15. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, just look in the seats in front of you and you can find Revelation 15 on page 1036. I'm going to read this passage. It's a very short chapter in Revelation, but it is packed with amazing, amazing truths. The Apostle John writes in verse 1, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. What is the point of this eight-verse chapter? What is the point of the details that John uses to describe what is going to follow in chapter 16, which is the seven bulls of God's wrath? What I've concluded through my study is that it relates to a discovery I've made through the years of education, and I will tell you that I've spent more time in the classroom than growing up Jeff would have ever wished on his greatest enemies. And through those years of classroom experiences, I've had many tests and papers and lectures, but most of all, I've had lots and lots and lots of reading. So for somebody who enjoys watching something rather than reading something, that has been challenging. But I've discovered a golden ticket discovery. And I commend it to you this morning. So whether you're a student, whether you just enjoy reading, whether you're realizing that you should be reading, even though you don't enjoy it, here's the golden ticket discovery. Read the introduction. You know, it's so easy for us to skip to chapter one. It's so easy for us when we're reading a textbook to skip to the words that are in bold or to the sections that have titles over them, but the introductions are crucial because it's the introduction that the author uses to tell us where he's taking us. 
It's the introduction that the details of the rest of the chapter or the book advance from the introduction. It's the introduction that the conclusion summarizes to show that what he said he would do for us was actually achieved, and the introduction is crucial. And so what Revelation 15 is, is really an introduction to the seven bulls, but listen to this. It's also a reminder of the introduction of Revelation. So I exhort you to look at your notes and to notice the big idea because it sets up the value for us in studying this. The big idea of Revelation 15 is that the introduction of the final seven, the final seven description of God's salvation through judgment provides the lens for us to conquer and endure. It's interesting, I think that chapter 15 shows us three attributes of God's character that are confirmed through the details that John continues to unpack for us. Number one, God is a God of justified wrath. God is a God of justified wrath. We don't like to talk about God's wrath. In fact, God's wrath is a topic that confuses us, it frustrates us, it often seems to put God on the defensive. But I hope to show you that the problem is not with God, it's with our understanding. To set that up, look at verse 1. It says, then I saw another sign in heaven. What, what this phrase does is draw our attention to what has occurred previously. And what John is specifically saying by saying another sign is that this is a third in a sequence of a section of signs. You can go back, not right now, but to chapter 12 in verse 1, and you see this was the first of three signs. John said he saw a great sign in heaven, which was a woman who later we see was pregnant. In Revelation 12, verse 3, we see that he saw a second great sign in heaven that was a red dragon. And so when we arrive at chapter 15, verse 1, and John says he saw another sign, it's triggering the author to move the reader to what has already taken place, which I submit to you, we need to go back even further to chapter 1. Anytime John takes us back, we need to be asking the question, what is the purpose of Revelation? And the purpose of Revelation is not up to us. The purpose of Revelation is not up to a best-selling author and a novel series. The purpose of Revelation is not left up to traditions or denominations or systems. The purpose of Revelation is left up to Scripture itself. And here's a summary of what I believe, studying verse 1 of chapter 1 through our passage in chapter 15 tells us. The purpose of Jesus giving John and us revelation is that we have exactly what we need to conquer and endure to, air quotes, the end. That's the purpose of revelation. I know there's a lot of confusion. Is the purpose of revelation so that we can see whether or not what's going on in Israel is the trigger of the end times? 
I know there's a lot of confusion as to whether or not revelation is intended to be symbolic or literal. I know there's a lot of confusion as to whether or not revelation should be our focus and we should have prophecy conferences all the time. But the purpose of revelation from scripture is that Jesus wants his followers to have exactly what we need to conquer and endure until the end. And why I put that in quotes is because the end has been ordained by God. It could either be for us as individuals, the end like Salafaso experienced last Friday, which is the end of our individual lives, or that we are alive when the end of redemptive history happens. And so let's not get hung up on what actually the end is for you and me. Let's recognize that God has ordained our end. And so however long he's given us breath, whatever we experience in life, whether blessings or tragedies or anything in between, God has given us through the book of Revelation, which I submit to you, points back to the entire Bible, exactly what we need to conquer and endure. What a glorious gift this is. And I would also submit to you this. I think more than the details of the future, the book of Revelation serves us to teach us how to interpret scripture. I have become more and more convinced of that. How many times does John go back to the Old Testament and he does so again in these eight verses, the gift that he has given the original audience and us is how to interpret scripture. And how we interpret scripture is this, everything points to Christ. So whether we're studying Genesis, whether we're studying Lamentations, whether we're studying the Kings and Psalms, whether we're studying the New Testament, it is pointing us to Christ. If you can get that, you understand how to start studying and interpreting the Bible. So let's go back to Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. He is giving to John, to Christians, to show us what must take place, to show us how to understand Scripture, to show us how to understand Christ. And there's going to be a screen that's going to be put up behind me that's going to summarize all 14 chapters that have led us up to this point. Revelation chapter 1, what John is doing is teaching us who Christ is not the Christ of our understanding, not the Christ of our comfort, not the Christ of our traditions, our experience, our reasoning, but the Christ of Scripture. That's why John describes Jesus the way that he does. All of the descriptions of his clothing, all the descriptions of his hair, all of the descriptions of what's coming out of his mouth goes back to the Old Testament so that we can see Jesus is God. That Jesus is the point of redemptive history to align our understandings and definitions and expectations of Jesus to what he says about himself. That's the gift of chapter one. And then chapters two through three, John reminds us Jesus knows his church. What a glorious encouragement and sobering conviction that is. He knows intimately the seven churches of Asia Minor, and we see that in the details of the seven letters, but it also reminds us he knows Ascend Church. Glory to God. 
Chapters four and five are the scenes of the throne room and it's less about the details. Is, is it a literal throne with lightning and thunder? Is it a you know, literal crystal sea? It's, it's less about that and more about the literal truths that it teaches us. And that is God is awesome. He is almighty. He is authoritative. And the lamb is worthy to administrate all of the details of redemptive history. That's four and five. Man, what a gift. And then chapter 6 is the the seven seals, and he's drawing back from Daniel. Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 12. Daniel had to seal up the book of the details of the future. And John is asking who's worthy to be able to administrate these authoritative details. And the lamb comes forward, and he is worthy. And so in chapter 6, we see seven seals that describe the incremental judgment of God on earth and the rebellious idolaters of the earth. And he uses a, a reference back to Zechariah and the four, the four horses and the four riders to show that God from, from Genesis 3 until he sets up his eternal kingdom is pouring out incrementally the judgment of his wrath on the earth and on rebellious idolaters and will bring it to completion. That's the seven seals. And then in chapter 7, we get a break. And he shows us this picture of heaven describes all of the conquerors of all time who have been covered by the blood of the lamb and does so with the creative imagery of 144,000 sons of Israel and then the multitudes from every tribe and tongue and nations. And I, I propose to you that that's the same group just from different angles and they are worshiping the lamb over and over and over again and they're celebrating his victory even though the victory isn't complete quite yet. And that's the beauty of Revelation 7. And then Revelation 8 and 9, the seven trumpets. And if you, if you follow those seven trumpets and you see what he's doing there, I think he's just repeating what the seven seals are. And, and this time he's using the plagues of Egypt. And he's showing that God is pouring out his judgment on the earth and on the rebellious idolaters, encouraging us that God's got this, that he's in control and that he will bring it to completion. That's, that's eight and nine. And then chapter 10 is another opportunity to oh, take a breath, to get our bearings. And then chapter 11, he, he moves away from the sevens, from the seven seals and the seven trumpets to, to then get some creative imagery. And he draws from Ezekiel. And Ezekiel was supposed to, to measure the temple, not the physical temple, but the spiritual temple. And, and John is told to do the same thing. And the spiritual temple is God's people dwelling with God. And he's describing in chapter 11, Christ's church. And he's reminding them that as the judgments pour out on the earth and the rebellious idolaters, that the world system is to become more and more antagonistic against Christ's church. But be confident, be encouraged. The Lamb's got this. And then chapter 12, we see through creative imagery that the, the dragon has, has been attacking and, and going against God through the ages, but specifically in the period from the resurrection to Christ's second kingdom or, or to his eternal kingdom. The, 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 the dragon is, is intentionally going against the people of God, but he's been defeated. But he's not, he's not satisfied with the knowledge of his defeat. He, he creates in chapter 13 this counterfeit system that looks so much like the things of God, that looks so attractive to the rebellious idolaters. And then in chapter 
14, we're reminded that this this world system is going to be uh, harvested. And those who continue in their rebellion are going to be sent to eternal judgment. Those who conquer and endure are going to be sent to eternal dwelling with God. And that brings us to chapter 15. Chapter 15 gives us some details that I think help us understand what John is advancing in this introduction. He says in verse 1, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Look at this. Seven angels, seven plagues. Do you see that in the text? Up to this point, if you've been with us, you understand seven is less about actually numbering each angel and more about what that's telling us. It symbolizes completion. That God's plan is being perfectly and completely fulfilled. And the plagues draw our attention back to the Exodus and to Egypt, and I'll show you more how John advances that in just a moment. He says, these are the last, which, by the way, I, I want to just stop and acknowledge that there are different conclusions about what these words mean. And I read through several commentaries of people who believe that what this phrase, the last, means is that the seals are one period of time that give way to the trumpets that are another period of time that give way to now the bowls that are the last period of time. And you can see even by my physical movement that they believe that this is sequential and chronological. And then there are others who say that the seals are advancing to number seven, and then seven gives way, telescoping to the seven uh, trumpets, and then the seventh trumpet then telescopes to the seven bulls, and I I respect them. One of the the commentaries I read was my professor from from seminary, and I respect them, and I'm not saying I'm absolutely right. I'm just telling you where I'm landing by by using the interpretive tools I believe are consistent from Genesis to Revelation, and, and I don't think either of those are correct. I think what John is saying here by saying the last is something he's been developing throughout the book of Revelation. Here's a quote to put up on the screen. The last seven is showing us that God is bringing his full judgment to completion. I think that's the point. And I'll explain more about this in just a moment, but I think the, the verbiage of the seven plagues and the seven angels and then him saying the last is just simply saying that this is the, the next vision that I saw. As God is revealing his plan for redemptive history, as he's revealing how to interpret scripture, this is, this is the last of the sevens. In fact, you can write down Leviticus 26, 21. There's there's verbiage there that is echoed here where Moses prophesies that there will be a sevenfold judgment on Israel. That means the complete judgment. And then I think he's referring to the plagues of Egypt, which we'll see in a moment, brought about the salvation of God's people. I think that's what John is doing by using the details that he describes, which brings us to the end of verse 1, which is the wrath of God. We don't like the wrath of God. It makes us feel uncomfortable. We like to talk about God's love, his mercy, his forgiveness. And we often are confronted with God's wrath, and we, we try to make ourselves feel more comfortable by, by using phrases like, God loves the sinner but hates the sin. 
Friends, I'm going to submit to you that God actually hates the sinner as well, but not in the way we hate. That's the deal. See, see, the problem is, is when we read wrath of God, we think about our wrath. When we read about the anger of God, we think about our anger. When we, when we think about God as Father, we, we immediately are tempted to, to define Father the way we understand Father, and there is the rub. But here's a quote up on the screen. We, we cannot understand the, the love, the mercy, the, the forgiveness of God. We cannot understand those realities of God's character accurately without first accurately understanding his wrath. And the path for us to get to a place where we let God's word define his character, where we let his word define his wrath, is by beginning to understand his holiness. Here's a quote from Jim Hamilton. God is a just God. Do, Do you believe that? Be careful. How do you define just? Is it the mantra that we're hearing in the news over and over again? Justice, justice, justice. It goes on to say, he is holy. How do you understand holy? My prayer hopefully helped us rally our our minds around what the Bible says. He is righteous. That means his, his standards of morality, his standards of ethics, his standards of good, he matches perfectly. He is good. And then listen to this phrase. He is personally offended by sin. I feel the weight of this at an individual level. That means any thought, any speech, any behavior that violates his righteous, holy standard offends him. And then you multiply that by all the souls that are in this room, all the souls that are watching online, all the souls of human beings who have ever existed or will ever existed offend righteous and holy God. And when we begin to see that, then we get to a place where we say, oh, of course he's wrathful. We start to ask questions, not how could a loving God allow this, but how does a loving God allow anything good? I think that's what Revelation and the entire Bible and the details of what John is providing in verse 1 are intended to teach us, that God is a God of justified wrath. Number two, God is a God of justified worship. You may ask the question, well, how did you get worship out of verses 2 through 4? And I know there's a mention of song, I know there's a mention of harps, but, but really there's, there's two mentions that drive me toward this idea of worship. The first one is embedded in verse two. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. Do you see that in the text? Write down chapter four, verse six. Remember, scripture interprets scripture. Sea of glass has already occurred back in chapter four. It occurs in John's description of the throne room. And in the throne room is God. And it also says mixed with fire. Do you see that? So so what does that mean? Well, fire throughout Revelation has typically referred to his judgment. 
And so it reminds us that while God is holy, while God is good, he's also wrathful and just, and he's pouring out his fire of judgment. And so this is the presence of God. But also in the presence of God are, in verse 2, those who had conquered. Do you see that in the text? See, I'm not making this up. And who are the ones that conquered? Well, they are the ones who conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. Now, again, if you weren't here or you're still wrestling with the place where I landed, I I would say this, that the beast, the mark, the 666 are less about tattoos and microchips and more about identity through the patterns of our lives. And I think what John is reiterating here is that those who conquer are the ones by the patterns of their lives show that their identity is Christ and not the world. And so listen, my question to you is, would your coworkers, your classmates, your neighbors be shocked to find out you're a Christ follower? I'm not saying that they would be shocked that you're a moral person or you're a good person or you're a religious person, but that your identity is Christ. And I know we live in a day where it seems like the ability to publicly identify as a Christ follower, not this fun, squashed, squishmallowed version of Jesus, but the Jesus of Scripture who stands courageously for righteousness and, yes, does so, wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove, but is uncompromising and courageous to name the name of Christ and not churchy things, that's challenging. And these who conquer are ones by the patterns of their thinking and their speech and their behavior and their priorities and how they present themselves on social media have as their identity Christ. If somebody was to look at your social media account, would the thing that they walk away with is that you exalt and make famous Christ? Those are the ones who conquer the beast and the world system. This is why I've come up with God is a God who's justified to be worshiped. So, so what does this mean? Well, verse three helps us. They, they sing the song of Moses. Oh, this is so good. You can write down Exodus 15. Song of Moses is a literal song reflecting on a literal historical event. But there's theology in it. It's not just celebrating some patriotic memory that Jews have from their past. Listen to this. It's celebrating that through the judgment of Israel, God saves his people. Oh, would you write that down? There's this theme that God saves through judgment is all throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. If you want to study an amazing book that, that pulls this theme through the entire Bible, is Jim Hamilton's book, Salvation Through Judgment. And you see, that's the point. As the Exodus is referred to, and and it's referred to here in this text, but as the authors of Scripture constantly go back to the Exodus, back to the Red Sea, back to the slavery in Israel, we see that what they're really focusing on is less about the historic details and more about the theology that God saves through judgment. Oh, we'll unpack this in just a moment. What's fascinating about this is, look, 
If you look at what he says, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and then look at verses three and four. This isn't the song of Moses from Exodus 15. Let the authors of scripture teach us how to interpret scripture. He is drawing from the Old Testament. In fact, here's the screen that will save you some time. Here are the phrases that you see in verses three and four and their subsequent tie-in to Old Testament passages. I'll give you a chance, take a picture, write it down. This will give you exercised muscles to understand how the New Testament and the Old Testament relate and that the God of the New Testament is the God of Old Testament. Man, that's confusion in evangelicalism today. I hear this. I hear this in the questions my daughter's asking me from her Christian worldview class at university. And how there's Christians today that think we should focus on the red letter portions of the Bible. What that means is that's the English translations. They have a red font where they say that they believe that this is the, 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 where Jesus spoke. Can somebody remind me, what time does this service end? Is it 1045? Okay, I gotta hurry. John is teaching us how to interpret the Bible. It's 1022 right now? Okay, thank you. I have more time. <laughs> so the Song of Moses is actually setting up something I want you to see. Would you turn back to Habakkuk chapter 2? What is John driving at in Revelation 15? By reminding us that the ones who conquer sing the Song of Moses... He, He's wanting us to remember examples in the Old Testament like Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17. Listen to what Habakkuk says. And, and try to do this. Try, try to understand the historical context and then somehow relate to that in a, in a modern context. Habakkuk three seventeen. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. And for, for, for us who don't grow up in an agricultural environment, we look at this and we're like, yeah, that would be tough. Let me, let me give that practical understanding. This means that if you were to start to realize you were having trouble focusing with your eyes, starting to have a tough time with your words, starting to not be able to have feeling in your right arm and you go into the doctor and you get scans and tests and you're waiting to hear the results and the doctor calls you and says, I got some tough news for you. We've determined that you have a glioblastoma brain tumor. and You only have months to live. That's what Sal LaFosso heard three years ago. And yet his testimony is Habakkuk's testimony. Look at verse 18. Yet I will rejoice. Yet I will take joy. This is what John wants for the reader of Revelation. So that whether it's some end times reality that we experience or just today, 
that no matter what happens in our lives where our world turns upside down, we can still, in that moment, like Sal and Karen did for three years, take joy and rejoice. How? Because Habakkuk tells us what John has been telling us for 15 chapters in Revelation. Habakkuk says, I rejoice in the Lord. I take joy in my God. That's the point of Revelation. Christ, he wins. He's our identity. Verse 19 of Habakkuk 3 says that he, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deers. He makes me tread on my high places. See, Habakkuk is remembering God's character. That's the point of Revelation. It's less about the details of what John is describing being literal or symbolic. It's all about the literal truths that they're teaching us. And John is teaching us in 15, even if we can debate who the seven angels are and the seven plagues and the seven bowls and when the last and the after this is, let's, let's enjoy debating that and have scriptural process that brings us there. But let's remember the point and not get distracted from the point. It's the character of God on display through Christ and the access that we have to him that will produce joy in our lives so we conquer and endure. That's worship. So now back to chapter 15. So what is the song of Moses? Well, let me help us with this, and this is biblical theology. Let's look at the physical events and then see how they connect spiritually, shall we? The physical events of the Exodus that led to the song of Moses is that a people in slavery who were incapable of freeing themselves called out to God desperately to save them. You cannot deny, that's the physical reality of the historical event of the Exodus, and we see that in Exodus 2. The Jews got to a point where they realized we cannot save ourselves, we've tried diplomacy, we've tried politics, we've tried all of this, we cannot save ourselves, help us God. That's the beginning of the Song of Moses. But then, moving from that, God defeats the slave master through judgment. That's what the plagues are about. And in fact, we see later that the author of Scripture says that ultimately behind the scenes, the plagues were more about divine beings warring against each other than they were politics and ethnicities. It was more about the God of Israel against the gods of Egypt. So so, so God pours out his judgment on the slave master, gaining victory for the slaves, which moves us to number three. The slaves then live in the victory of their freedom. That's the song of Moses, but listen, it's also the song of the Lamb. Do you know that at the moment of conception, we are slaves? (laughs) I was talking about this with my daughters last night. Our 13-year-old says, Dad, I don't like moment of conception. That's just ooh. (laughs) But theologically, it's important because it's not that we're born and the first bad thought that we have, the first bad word that we say, the first bad action that we perform, now we're sinners. No, 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 at the moment of conception, we are sinners. We have a nature that is enslaved to sin. 
And so we, we must get to a point where we recognize that and we call out to God and say, I, I've tried satisfaction from the world. I've tried to figure this thing out myself. I, I've tried to, to gain your favor through my own efforts and I can't. I need you. And then God pours out his wrath on the slave master of sin by pouring out his wrath on his son. Isn't that amazing? And as he does that, he gives access to the slaves to be freed, which then expects us to live our lives in the light of this victory, in the freedom of this victory. And that's the gospel. And friends, that's the song of the Lamb. Verse 3. So, so, so my question to you is this. Have you followed spiritually what Israel did physically in Egypt? And have you experienced the song of the Lamb? If not, friend, please today do that. We're not guaranteed any additional breaths. Now is the moment of your salvation. It's, it's been presented to you. So if the Holy Spirit has given you understanding, would you please respond to the gospel and submit your life to him? Because God is a God of justified worship. Number three, God is a God of justified wind-up. Let me just acknowledge that I suck at outlines. But, but, but hopefully you'll see what wind-up means here in just a moment. And it starts with a W. So verse 5, after this. Now, I'll, I'll submit to you that, again, I, I, Dr. Thomas was my professor. He wrote an amazing commentary on Revelation, and it is, it, it's incredible. He has such a high view of Scripture. But, but he subscribes to this more chronological, so that when, when he says, after this, he says, well, it says after this, which if I say after this service, you're going to do something, that's chronological, that's what it means. If that's what it means, then that's what it means. But let Scripture interpret Scripture, and that's where I disagree with Thomas. I think what he's saying here is he's been developing these types of concepts as he's not talking about chronology, he's simply talking about the order of the visions. Here's a quote. The order in which John saw the visions, but not necessarily the chronological of their occurrence in history. And so I think what that allows us to understand is what John's saying is, this, this is the third vision of sevens that I was given, and it's the last in the order of the three. But I think when we unpack these, although we'll see when I get to chapter 16, I think he's just simply rehearsing what the seals and the trumpets were. But I think the significance of the bowls and how uh, vivid they are are intended to elicit within us a better understanding that God is in control and the final judgment is going to take place. So what does wind up mean? It means an act of concluding or finishing something. An act of concluding or finishing something. And so what, what is he Advancing toward conclusion, well, verse 5 says that there's this sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven that was opened. Verse 6, the seven angels, seven plagues. I think he's showing us that he, God is moving this toward completion. 
Verse 7, one of the four living creatures gives to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of God's wrath. Gold is associated with God. God lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. So no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Okay, what does this mean? Well, sevens mean completion. So God's perfectly ordering all of the details of redemptive history to the point of conclusion. Second of all, it describes the clothing of the angels. Now, what's significant about the clothing of the angels is chapter one. The, The clothing of the angels is actually the same clothing that we see described of Jesus. So what this means is they're carrying out Jesus' plan perfectly. They're in agreement with Jesus. But then we're introduced to this interesting concept in verse 5 of the sanctuary of the tent of witness. The sanctuary of the tent of witness must be defined by Scripture. What Scripture defines as the sanctuary of the tent of witness is the place where God dwells with his people. This is the tent of meeting from the first five books of the Bible. This is the tabernacle from Leviticus. In fact, I would submit to you, this is the theme that began in the Garden of Eden that will be brought to completion in the New Jerusalem that God is pulling together, showing us that he's bringing this to completion. Let me give you some examples of that very quickly. The garden, Genesis 3.8. The tabernacle, Leviticus 26.11 and 12. The temple, the life of Solomon, and all of the kings subsequent. The church, 1 Corinthians 3.16, and then finally, Revelation 21.3, where God says, the dwelling place of God is with man, and God will dwell with his people. And so I think what John is doing here in these eight verses is reminding us that he's about to show us from the bulls what God has been showing us from Genesis to Revelation, that God is in control, that he's a wrathful God, that he is holy, that he's pouring out his judgment incrementally and will finally pour out one last judgment and set up his kingdom for eternity. That's the point. But we don't necessarily like that, do we? Reminds me, and I'll just say this very quickly, that uh, we used clear play when we watched these movies, which means as parents we were able to pull out some things that we didn't want our children to see. But we watched the Divergent series. It's a, a three-movie uh, f- uh, series that is about this dystopian future, like young adult reality, where all of the humans are divided up into factions. And the, the, the main character is Beatrice or Tris Pryor. And, and man, you, you get attached to her. I, I didn't. I was attached more to four, the dude, that guy. Yeah. Actually, my girls were attached to four, too. No, that's a different story. But you know, the movies end, and I won't ruin it, hopefully, and it, it, it has closure, and you're like, all right. And when you move on to the next trilogy or rom-com, I live in a house of girls, so that's my reality. But then I found out something tragic, and that is that the novels end differently. I don't like the way the novels end, so I will never read the novels. <laughs> but I think that's sometimes how we handle the author of redemptive history. That's sometimes how we handle God as he reveals his character. We, we read it and we say, I don't, I, don't, I don't like that. I want to only focus on the 
certain aspects of God. I, I, I don't like this wrath being poured out on humanity. I don't like the fact that the church is going to be persecuted. I, I, I don't like that, so I'm, I'm going to choose to follow something different. I'm going to choose to define it differently. But I think what John's showing us by the introduction to the seven bulls is this. God is a God of justified wind-up.